0: This is The New Yorker Out Loud from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Triesman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we have a reading of a New Yorker short story from the archives or from a more recent issue. This month, we're going to hear a story by the late Donald Barthelme called I Bought a Little City. First published in The New Yorker in 1974, it's an absurdist tale about God, capitalism, and urban planning. Here's how it begins.
1: So I Bought a Little City. It was Galveston, Texas, and told everybody that nobody had to move. We were going to do it just gradually, very laid back. No big changes overnight.
0: Donald Barthelme grew up in Texas, but he spent many years in New York as an editor and writer before returning to Houston toward the end of his life. He died in 1989 at the age of 68. The New Yorker first published a Barthelme story in 1963 when he was 31. 129 more stories followed. All of them were characterized by his hilarious wit, his talent for the telling non sequitur, and his own surreal brand of verbal experimentation. bartholomew was never a best-selling author, but his work has had a huge effect on other writers, including the novelist Donald Antrim, who chose this month's story.
1: What I take away from it mainly is a sort of gratitude. If we feel like we don't really know where we're going or what's going to happen, I think that was true also for him.
0: Donald Antrim and I will talk a little more about Barthelemy and his story after the reading. Now, here's Donald Antrim reading I Bought a Little City by Donald Barthelemy.
1: So I bought a little city. It was Galveston, Texas. And told everybody that nobody had to move. We were going to do it just gradually, very laid back. No big changes overnight. They were pleased and suspicious. "'I walked down to the harbor where there were cotton warehouses "'and fish markets and all sorts of installations "'having to do with the spread of petroleum throughout the free world. "'And I thought, a few apple trees here might be nice. "'Then I walked out this broad boulevard, "'which has all these tall, thick palm trees, "'maybe forty feet high in the center and oleanders on both sides. "'It runs for blocks and blocks "'and ends up opening up to the broad Gulf of Mexico.' Stately homes on both sides, and a big Catholic church that looks more like a mosque, and the bishop's palace, and a handsome red brick affair where the Shriners meet. I thought, what a nice little city. It suits me fine. It suited me fine, so I started to change it, but softly, softly. I asked some folks to move out of a whole city block on I Street, and then I tore down their houses. I put the people into the Galvez Hotel, which is the nicest hotel in town, right on the seawall, and I made sure that every room had a beautiful view. Those people had wanted to stay at the Galvez Hotel all their lives and never had a chance before because they didn't have the money. They were delighted. I tore down their houses and made that empty block a park. We planted it all to hell and put some nice green iron benches in it and a little fountain, all standard stuff. We didn't try to be imaginative. I was pleased. All the people who lived in the four blocks surrounding the empty block had something they hadn't had before. A park. They could sit in it and like that. I went and watched them sitting in it. There was already a black man there playing bongo drums. I hate bongo drums. I started to tell him to stop playing those goddamn bongo drums, but then I said to myself, no, that's not right. You've got to let him play his goddamn bongo drums if he feels like it. It's part of the misery of democracy to which I subscribe. Then I started thinking about new housing for the people I had displaced. They couldn't stay in that fancy hotel forever. But I didn't have any ideas about new housing, except that it shouldn't be too imaginative. So I got to talking to one of these people, one of the ones we had moved out, a guy by the name of Bill Caulfield who worked in a wholesale tobacco place down on Mechanic Street. "'So what kind of place would you like to live in?' I asked him. "'Well,' he said, "'not too big.' Uh "'Uh-huh. "'Maybe with a veranda around three sides,' he said, "'so we could sit on it and look out. "'A screen porch, maybe.' "'What you gonna look out at?' "'Maybe some trees and, you know, the lawn. "'So you want some ground around the house. "'That would be nice, yeah.' About how much ground are you thinking of? Well, not too much. You see, the problem is, there's only X amount of ground, and everybody's going to want to have it to look at, and at the same time they don't want to be staring at the neighbors. Private looking, that's the thing, I would imagine. Well, yes, he said. I'd like it to be kind of private. Well, I said, get a pencil and let's see what we can work out. We started with what there was going to be to look at which was damn difficult, because when you look, you don't want to be able to look at just one thing. You want to be able to shift your gaze. You need to be able to look at at least three things, maybe four. Bill Caulfield solved the problem. He showed me a box. I opened it up, and inside was a jigsaw puzzle with a picture of the Mona Lisa on it. Looky here,' he said. "'If each piece of ground was like a piece of this here puzzle,' and the tree line on each piece of property followed the outline of a piece of the puzzle. Well, there you have it, QED, and that's all she wrote. Fine, I said. Where are the folk going to park their cars? In the vast underground parking facility, he said. Okay, but how does each householder gain access to his household? The tree lines are double and shade beautifully paved walkways, possibly bordered with begonias, he said a lurkway for potential muggists and rapers, I pointed out. There won't be any such, Caulfield said, because you've bought our whole city and won't allow that class of person to hang out here no more. That was right. I had bought the whole city and could probably do that. I had forgotten. Well, I said finally, let's give her a try. The only thing I don't like about it is that it seems a little imaginative. We did, and it didn't work out badly there was only one complaint a man named A.G. Barty came to see me listen he said his eyes either gleaming or burning I couldn't tell which it was a cloudy day I feel like I'm living in this gigantic jive-ass jigsaw puzzle he was right seen from the air he was living in the middle of a titanic reproduction of the Mona Lisa too but I thought it best not to mention that We allowed him to square off his property into a standard 60-by-100-foot lot with the consent of the neighboring property owners. And later, some other people did that, too. Some people just like rectangles, I guess. I must say, it improved the concept. You run across an occasional rectangle in Shady Oaks. We didn't want to call the development anything too imaginative. And it surprises you. That's nice. I said to myself, "'Got a little city. Ain't it pretty?' By now, I had exercised my proprietorship so lightly, and if I do say so myself, tactfully. that I wondered if I was enjoying myself enough. And I had paid a heavy penny, too, near to half my fortune. So I went out on the streets then and shot 6,000 dogs. This gave me great satisfaction, and you have no idea how wonderfully it improved the city for the better. This left us with a dog population of 165,000, as opposed to a human population of something like 89,000. Then I went down to the Galveston News, the morning paper, and wrote an editorial denouncing myself as the vilest creature the good God had ever placed upon the earth, and were we, the citizens of this fine community who were, after all, free Americans of whatever race or creed, going to sit still while one man, one man, if indeed so vile a critter could be so called, etc., etc., I gave it to the city desk and told them I wanted it on the front page in 14-point type, boxed. I did this just in case they might have hesitated to do it themselves, and because I'd seen that Orson Welles picture where the guy writes a nasty notice about his own wife's terrible singing, which I always thought was pretty decent of him, from some points of view. A man whose dog I'd shot came to see me. You shot Butch, he said. Butch? Which one was Butch? One brown ear and one white ear, he said. Very friendly. Mr., I said, I've just shot 6,000 dogs, and you expect me to remember Butch? Bush was all Nancy and me had, he said. We never had no children. Well, I'm sorry about that, I said, but I own this city. I know that, he said. I am the sole owner, and I make all the rules. They told me, he said. I'm sorry about Butch, but he got in the way of the big campaign. You ought to have had him on a leash. I don't deny it, he said. You ought to have had him inside the house. He was just a poor animal that had to go out sometimes. And mess up the streets something awful? Well, he said, it's a problem. I just wanted to tell you how I felt. You didn't tell me, I said. How do you feel? I feel like busting your head, he said. "'and showed me a short length of pipe he had brought along for the purpose. "'But, of course, if you do that, "'you're going to get your ass in a lot of trouble,' I said. "'I realized that it would make you feel better. "'But then I own the jail and the judge and the police "'and the local chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union. "'All mine. "'I could hit you with a writ of mandamus. "'You wouldn't do that. "'I've been known to do worse.' "'You're a black-hearted man,' he said. "'I guess that's it. "'You'll roast in hell and the eternal flames, "'and there will be no mercy nor cooling drafts from any quarter.' "'He went away satisfied with this explanation. "'I was happy to be a black-hearted man in his mind, "'if that would satisfy the issue between us, "'because that was a bad-looking piece of pipe he had there, "'and I was still 6,000 dogs ahead of the game in a sense.' So I owned this little city, which was very, very pretty, and I couldn't think of any more new innovations just then or none that wouldn't get me punctuated like the late Huey P. Long, former governor of Louisiana. The thing is, I had fallen in love with Sam Hong's wife. I would wandered into this store on Tremont Street, where they sold Oriental novelties, paper lanterns, and cheap china and bamboo bird cages, and wicker footstools, and all that kind of thing. She was smaller than I was, and I thought I had never seen that much goodness in a woman's face before. It was hard to credit. It was the best face I'd ever seen. I can't do that, she said, because I am married to Sam. Sam? She pointed over to the cash register where there was a Chinese man, young and intelligent looking, and pouring that intelligent look at me with considered unfriendliness. Well, that's dismal news, I said. Tell me, "'Do you love me?' "'A little bit,' she said. "'But Sam is wise and kind, "'and we have one and one-third lovely children.' "'She didn't look pregnant, but I congratulated her anyhow, "'and then went out on the street and found a cop "'and sent him down to H Street "'to get me a bucket of Colonel Sanders Kentucky Fried Chicken, "'extra crispy. "'I did that just out of meanness. "'He was humiliated, but he had no choice. "'I thought, "'I own a little city, awful pretty. "'Can't help people.' can hurt them, though. Shoot their dogs. Mess them up. Be imaginative. Plant trees. Best to leave them alone. Who decides? Sam's wife is Sam's wife, and coveting is not nice. So I ate the Colonel Sanders Kentucky Fried Chicken extra crispy and sold Galveston, Texas, back to the interests. I took a bath on that deal. There's no denying it, but I learned something. Don't play God. A lot of other people already knew that, but I have never doubted for a minute that a lot of other people are smarter than me and figure things out quicker and have grace and statistical norms on their side. Probably I went wrong by being too imaginative, although really I was guarding against that. I did very little. I was fairly restrained for a god. He does a lot worse things every day in one little family, any family, than I did in that whole little city, but he's got a better imagination than I do for instance, I still covet Sam Hong's wife. That's torment. Still covet Sam Hong's wife and probably always will. It's like having a tooth pulled for a year, the same tooth. That's a sample of his imagination. It's powerful. So what happened? What happened was that I took the other half of my fortune and went to Galena Park, Texas, and lived inconspicuously there. And when they asked me to run for the school board, I said, no, I don't have any children.
0: That was novelist Donald Antrim reading I Bought a Little City by Donald Barthelme. Donald Antrim is the author of three novels, as well as a memoir, The Afterlife, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Hi, I'm Deborah Treesman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead,
1: Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after.
0: Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow the writer's voice wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation.
0: So, Donald, why did you pick this one particularly?
1: I picked it just because I like it. What I take away from it mainly is a sort of gratitude. It, it, it reminds me of the time in my life when I was beginning to, to wonder whether writing could be something that one, one would actually do, you know, that I would do.
0: There's often, I, you know, in his stories, they seem to begin with a premise. I bought a city. And I kind of see that in what you do, too. You start with an idea, a yeah. hundred brothers, or a dinner at a pancake house, and take it from there. And it seems as though you sort of it, – it's almost a challenge coming up with an absurd idea and then turning it into something genuine.
1: Yeah, I, I think that probably the experience of working on something that begins with a kind of a deliberately uh, fantastic conceit is uh, – you never really know if things are going to work out as time goes on.
0: That may be part of the reason why he keeps things short, because you can only go so long with a concept that's not believable.
1: Yeah, eventually it's going to collapse, I suppose. I mean, he he changes the terms on you in, in such a way that you're always having to sort of expand or reconfigure your notion of, of the world. But he, but he does it uh, while sustaining the core logic. In other words, the the thought process or the voice of the author and and of the speaker in the story they're very um consistent so that even though it seems that we're bouncing from one part of a story to another part of a story mm-hmm. we're always held as it were you know we're always we're safe inside this kind of crazy world.
0: To jump to shooting 6,000 dogs or falling in love with Sam Hong's wife is just a way of saying, wake up, remember who you're with, remember what we're doing
1: here. Yeah, in a way, I guess. And also, we don't get to see what Bartholomew would have written. Was there a time in the story when a character didn't go out and shoot 6,000 dogs? I don't know. There's something right about it that even as strange as it is, in a way, what's being added to is our perception of this sort of odd, funny reality of the writer's existence or the character's existence. I mean, it becomes... We accept it to the degree that it becomes real, even as it seems to violate itself as we go along.
0: Now, I know that um, Bartholomew's father was an architect, and they had a difficult relationship sometimes. It occurred to me that perhaps that was why he chose city planning um, <laughs> as the center of a story about the, the troubles with playing God.
1: Yeah, it's quite possible. Yeah. Um, it's also, it could be a, a little bit of a, a take on the role that the writer has in writing a story, mm-hmm. playing God in a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. you know, the difficulty over the idea of...
0: Killing someone's dog off.
1: Well, or, or what's imaginative and what's too imaginative, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, so maybe some of Bartholomew's anxieties are coming through.
0: Uh, maybe this is the editor with his red pencil. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Someone uh, mentioned that perhaps the premise of this story isn't as absurd as it seemed, um, given that the actress Kim Bassinger bought a town in Georgia.
1: I think probably that y- you could go through um, all of Barthelme's stories and find a lot of crazy-seeming conceits uh, which have actually been realized either before or since they were, the stories were written. Uh, I-, I think Barthelme is a-, a good example of a writer whose wild impulses register with some reality.
0: For more stories by Donald Barthelme or Donald Antrim, please visit our newly redesigned website, newyorker.com. Or if you'd like to hear more from The New Yorker, visit iTunes or audible.com to download the weekly audio edition of the magazine. You've been listening to The New Yorker Out Loud from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.